Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and... And Mayu. What's going on, everybody? Austin, what's going on, man? What I've been up to? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I actually have some new updates today. So our eight units uh, that we purchased, I guess it was probably just a year ago now, um, we finally got it reappraised after turning over six of the units. We purchased it at three ninety five, and we got it appraised at nine hundred thousand. We oh, put in a- about a hundred and sixty five, a hundred and seventy k in it. So very happy with that appraisal. Yeah, and we just had another tenant leave, so seven of eight units are going to be like turned over now, and oh, not seven of eight, sorry, six. We turned over five units. Six of eight is going to be turned over now that that tenant left. And another tenant, unfortunately, not feeling well, bedridden, older gentleman, like 95. He's he's kind of getting to that point where, um, you know, like he doesn't have much longer. Um, unfortunate, somewhere within the next year or so, like maybe less than a year, that unit would be vacant. So we're talking about seven of eight units. And then the last tenant is actively searching for a house. Um, now that they're searching for a house now, I feel like they have better chances. Had they told me that obviously a month and a half ago, I was like, yeah, they're not going to find a place, but Mm. if they're putting in offers now, there's obviously like a good chance that they'll probably find one. So I'm hoping that that one would be vacant as well sometime within the next year and a half or so. And, uh, yeah, I'm pretty much guaranteed seven of eight, but like, let's hopefully make that eight of eight and then refinance that again, maybe next year. We'll see what happens. What What kind of loan to value did you guys get on the refinance for that? Uh, it hasn't been fully approved yet. Um, so they're going to the approval process, but it'll be 75%. It shouldn't be any sort of issues because again, like majority of the rent rolls have been turned around and yeah. at a 900 K is not a significant for an eight unit. Not, not true. tremendous amount. True. That's right? true. Yeah. Yeah. It's a legal eight plex. It's a legal eight plex, not illegal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Legal. <laughs> it's yeah. legal. It's legal. Yeah. 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 I know when you add the A, it sounds like illegal. (laughs) It's legal. It's legal. Yeah. No, that's dope. Um, That's a good, that's actually like a pretty low appraisal value, but I guess you guys don't really need more than that. Right. It's like, why go full like levered up to like the tets. Right. So. Yeah. We we don't, we definitely don't need more than that. And we were expecting less than that. It is in a tertiary market, right? It's about 30 minutes out from Sudbury. So cap rates there Mm -hmm. are going to be much higher than not much higher, but it's going to be like, considerably yeah, yeah. higher than, than what cap rate did you get we got a oh, i got a double track it's either a seven or eight cap holy shit that's is, high that's yeah it's high. high yeah it's pretty high but like i'm okay i'm totally okay with that right like honestly as long as you get the price comes at 900 yeah. yeah as long as you get the price and like the benefit of having a high cap rate it means there's more cash flow left in the deal as well for you right so it's like exactly. at, at some point you don't necessarily want to max out on the appraisal all the time right yeah so Don't that mess. was one thing. Um, not, what else? Okay. Another thing that, uh, that 10 acre property, um, mm. that duplex with the single family on it. So like, I guess call it a triplex, uh, that one, we got reappraised as well. Um, so it's been just about three months now or a little bit over three months. We purchased it for four or the partner purchased it for four sixty five. Um, from our wholesale company, we're working together on it. We put in about, I want to say, 50 to 60, probably 50 K worth of work, 50 to 60 K, including cash for keys. Maybe it's closer to 60 K. Mm. Um, and we got it reappraised for 890 K. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> but we're not going to, yeah, we're not going to leverage to <laughs> the absolute max. Yeah. That's stupid. So like you're talking about a full burr plus like maybe 200 or like close to 200, maybe 180 K, something crazy. So, so 900 times 80%. What is that? About 970? Yeah, minus four sixty-five times point eight, which is oh, 720 minus four sixty-five minus another hundred and fifty. So another hundred yeah, K on top of getting everything out. That's oh, a sure. that's that's still dope, man. hundred K plus cash out uh plus rentals plus no no, it's hundred and ninety-eight K, I think, right? Our cash refi out is three hundred and fifty K. 
Oh, no, you're right, man. I, I put 150 for renovation. I realized you just said you spent six. No, no, no. Yeah. We're, we're refining out like close to 200 G's. We're yeah. not going to like, we're not going to do that. Right. And I, I, cause here's the thing is I told him, it's like, look, if your goal is to acquire real estate, it makes no sense to leverage to that point because like the ratios are going to be messed up for that property. You're not going to be That's able to buy true. another, yeah. like you're, you're sacrificing. Yeah. I'm like, you might be able to find one more deal, but like, what's the point of finding one more deal if you get capped off from, from that point. Um, yeah. But some good news. And one more thing, last thing is, is that, and you know, this my, we bought, Waylon and I, we bought a, a, a property for 520 and prior to closing, like you were helping us uh, with financing Scotia. I never knew Scotia would ever appraise things this high, but we purchased it for 520 Scotia, appraised it for 740 or 745 as is. Yeah. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. 745 as is. Obviously I disagree with that appraisal. Like it should be like much less. Um, I, I was thinking like 650 to seven, 700 be generous, like 650, which is still above. Um, what we paid for, but like, I, it was quite, it's a good news for us because like usually banks will never appraise. I haven't seen a bank appraise 250,000 above on the residential side. <laughs> so like, yeah. or like two, 220,000 above. So like that's good news, but we don't know if it's going to close. That's the main thing. Cause I, from the first day we got it under contract, the seller has been antsy. I'm 80% sure it's going to close, but like, there's always that 20% where you're just like, I, you don't know. Right. You don't know. But uh, pretty confident that it's going to go through. But if it doesn't, then I don't, that'd be super shady. We got to figure out what we're going to do from that aspect of things. But uh, that's everything on my end. So it's been quite an eventful week. A lot of wins this week. <laughs> You've been having a busy week, man. Yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How about you, man? What have you been up to? Um, I finally got out to Prince Edward County this weekend. This is probably like my second or third time maybe going out to this flip since we started. And it's going on way longer. Like I think our contractor was managing two projects at the same time. So not happy with him about that just because like we missed the peak of this market. It would have been sick. We would have been able to sell probably in the high sixes and now we're looking at the high fives, right? So uh, we'll see what happens. But either way, you want to get out of that flip as soon as possible. Probably now in the next two weeks or so, we'll be listing that. Um, and then hopefully it sells at a good, at a decent price and we can, you know, cash out and get, because we buy all cash, there's a good amount of cash sitting in it. Um, other than that, the resort is still ongoing. Hopefully I'll have an update for everyone in the next couple of weeks regarding that. Um, and I'm more so just like looking to get back into like the networking game, talking to people. I think the next like 18 months will be like a period of turmoil where, um, I'm trying to decide on what opportunity makes the most sense for the next 18 months, right? Like what market, um, what strategy, single family, duplex, triplex, uh, multiplex, right? Um, in Ontario, outside of Ontario, outside of Canada, like a lot of variables that I'm just honestly trying to decide on. Um, and then also there's a fact of like, how much time can I really spend deal hunting? So it's been a week of self-reflection probably more for me than anything else. Um, but yeah, we'll see how it goes. Anyway, we're both going out to Mike Van Hoot's um, lunch this Sunday as well, right? Yep. On Sunday. Exactly. Exactly. So that should be fun getting back out to the network and grind of things. Hopefully things don't shut down again. So make the most out of the next few months um, when the weather's good. We're going to jump into today's podcast episode. We have Sahil Jaggi. Sahil, you probably heard of him in a couple of other podcasts as well. He is a phenomenal investor based in Toronto, um, doing things like development, conversions, He's been investing for over a decade and his portfolio size is well over 20 million assets under management. So doing phenomenal things in the GTA. So for people who think that you can't make numbers work in Toronto, Sahil is going to show just how you can with his strategy that he implements for himself and his clients. It's going to be a phenomenal episode, especially for those Toronto investors out there. You're going to enjoy this one. Make sure to also like, subscribe, do whatever you can to support this podcast episode. And we're going to jump into it right now. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest. I'm super excited for this episode. We have Sahil here. Sahil, how's everything going, man? It's great, man. Nice to, nice to chat with you again. And it's, uh, it's good to be here. I don't know if you remember, Sal, we had a coaching call like years ago now. I think it was like two years or something like that ago. And two years ago, I remember that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, definitely really valued your input even back then. I think even now you're killing it as a real estate investor. But Sal, for anyone that doesn't know you, which unless you guys, you know, don't read the newspaper and stuff, you this is really hard to not know, Sal. But uh, for anyone that doesn't know you, why don't you give them a, a quick background on yourself? Sure. Yeah. So 
this is my 12th year now in real estate as an investor um, and my seventh year as a real estate agent. So started back in 2010 uh, and started investing in Toronto in detached homes at the time when I just left investment banking from New York, uh, came back to Toronto, started buying uh, detached homes. The first house I ever bought, I uh, lived in the basement, rented out the upstairs, basically house hacking and prices at the time in Toronto at that house that I purchased were about a half a million dollars. Um, from that point onwards, you know, it sparked a lot of passion towards real estate. It was the reason why I had less investment banking was because I wasn't convinced it was for me. I wanted to do something different. So when I did buy this property, naturally just started getting me into learning about areas, what drives growth, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, fast forward 12 years, uh, today my portfolio valuation is about 25 million, comprising of 17 properties in Toronto. All of them still are in Toronto. And uh, yeah, it's been a great journey. Uh, you know, as I started doing real estate investing and had a lot of people started coming up to me and saying, look, we want your help to us, help us do the exact same thing. It was also, again, very natural for me to like then go into selling real estate and focusing. So I sort of made that my niche to work specifically with investors. And 80% of the people that I work with today as my clients are all investors. And um, as a real estate agent, it's also been a lot of fun. I think we were just talking about it prior to this, that it's important to have, uh, you know, real estate is such a big, there's so many spectrums to it, right? So if you can do what you're doing for yourself and then use that to also sell to other people, you sort of have a synergy that you can have an income stream and then you take that income and you put it back into the investment stream. And you're spending eight hours a day as an investor either investing yourself or helping other people do the exact same. That's awesome, man. So we're very excited here because I think we might may have only had one person who invested in Toronto in our entire podcast and we've been operating for two years. That was Ming. Oh yeah, um, we had Ming on. Yeah. Yeah, we had Ming on a while back, but the, we haven't had a Toronto investor in a while. I just kind of want to get started with early on in your journey. What was kind of the thought process of investing in Toronto? What was your strategy? I guess like Manu and I are familiar with it. But I guess the purpose of this question is I want to set that kind of frame there to see how that strategy evolved as Toronto became more difficult to invest in. So what were you doing initially when you invested in the GTA? So, uh, you know, again, when I moved into Toronto from New York, the one thing that I had made up my mind was that I don't want to get into like a nine to five kind of job. And I did want to like, you know, get into something that really sparked my passion. Right. So, but I didn't have any clue that I was going to do that for real estate. The point was to look for a property to buy for myself to live in. So I started looking into condominiums. That was the first, you know, I had about 80 to hundred K saved and I was like, okay, I'm going to start looking at condominium because that sounds more like it's affordable. But to my surprise, I realized that the gap between the condominium and the detached market at the time was very less. It was very small. What I mean by that is if you went and bought a two bedroom condo in 2010, right at Young and Shepherd area, it was about 400 to 450,000. But I realized that the bungalow sitting on a 50 foot lot with potential of two apartments was about 500,000. So the gap was very small. So that right away, you know, uh, made me realize that, you know, there's something off here. I feel like the gap should be a lot larger, especially if you're buying into freehold land. I'm also very like, you know, I come from India where freehold land is very difficult to get uh, a lot of different parts of the world. If you look at New York, uh, you know, when I've traveled to Singapore, New York, all these places, it's well known that buying land in a lot of those developed cities is very difficult. And the way I perceived Toronto at the time where, you know, it had a lot going for itself. It was very immigration friendly. It's politically very stable, uh, Canada as a country. Uh, healthcare was excellent and it's a lot of new opportunities for immigrants. So I always saw Toronto. Also, if you, if you follow the trends, you know, like basketball, hip hop, music, everything combined makes Toronto a very attractive city internationally. So I always felt like compared to all the top cities in the world, Toronto specifically was very undervalued. So to me, that was an instant uh, light bulb, right? Like, hey, I'm looking at 50 foot lots or massive lots in one of the most centrally located areas near Young Street selling for half a million. And then you've got these shoebox condos selling for a very less. So I think the initial thing was the macroeconomically, I felt like Toronto was still very good. And if you look at specific neighborhoods, uh, the first reason why I felt very comfortable investing was the sheer uh, less gap between the condo market and the freehold market. So as 2010 happened, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, the gap increased. And I had already purchased four to five properties by the time I was at 2016, doing very similar thing that 
you know, the, the Burr strategy. I didn't even know it was called Burr back in the day. I was just doing it, right? So you're buying properties, you're renovating it, you're renting it, and then you, you're accumulating all this equity. Mortgage restrictions were a lot lower. So even with a lower income, I was able to take mortgages back in the day when restrictions weren't that bad. So uh, until today, to end the point is that I still don't see a reason to get out of Toronto. And I don't think affordability alone should be the reason why anybody should step out of an area because ultimately as an investor, you have to look at value, not price points, right? And I still see certain areas in Toronto. And if I'm able to use my economies of scale in an infrastructure, I don't have a reason to still get out of Toronto. To talk about that, because I understand, you know, when you got started in real estate, it was obviously very different from today, right? Um, right. You know, pros and cons, I'm sure, in both regards. But we could almost just jump ahead to today and, and what you're doing today, right? From an investor's perspective and what you see your clients doing. But um, how does one invest in Toronto in today's market? Um, like, what are the strategies that work today? What are the strategies as you as your journey progresses? Because it sounds like you started off with single family with maybe an in-law suite, maybe a duplex, I don't know, right? Um, and then you, you, your strategy, I'm sure, has evolved over the years. I'm just curious what that evolution was like um, and what you see working today. So as much as me as an investor can give you a one straight answer, do I still see uh, value in Toronto and do I need to have the feeling of go out of Toronto? I think it's a lot to do with the fact that I'm blessed with the affordability of having the luxury to purchase in Toronto. Right. That doesn't necessarily mean that a newcomer, it might be very clear now that there's people that have priced out of Toronto, right? But similar strategies and similar fundamentals of investments can be applied to places outside of Toronto if you want to invest in real estate and you can't invest in Toronto, that should not be the reason that you should not grow your portfolio and go outside of Toronto. So I'm not saying that invest in Toronto because it's better. I'm saying invest where, first of all, you have to have the affordability of investing in Toronto. It also happens to be that a lot of my clients and a lot of the investors that I'm working with are also high net worth clients who are investing. Uh, when they come to me and they have, the, again, the luxury of affordability in Toronto, then my first thing is, if you can afford to purchase properties up to one to one and a half million dollars, buy a bungalow and do the same thing of having the duplex and small house, big piece of land where you see a lot of upsize, then you should absolutely first try and buy in Toronto. But if you can't, then you have to look at alternative solutions, such as what you guys are doing. Like a lot of the investments are in Windsor, or all the investments are in Aurelia, Peterborough, and different areas. So uh, as a newcomer, you shouldn't just drop out of the game because you can't invest in Toronto. You should always look at what's the next best opportunity for me that allows within my criteria and budget for me to invest in. The purpose is that the fundamental of business to me is very like, okay, first of all, you should always try to buy freehold. Within freehold category, you should buy something that has an upside. So value add propositions, which is as big as land as you can get, small home, has a lot of upside. And that house that you have in that property is it good for cash flows that comes with the maximum use of land or maximum use of house, which is duplex, triplex, fourplex, right? So cash flows, equity investment growth, and obviously then the third aspect to everything is what is the amount of managing that you can do, what kind of tenants you can attract and what kind of demographics of tenants, what kind of timeline or what kind of uh, you know, lifestyle you have to support that kind of investment for yourself to grow mm -hmm. it. Okay, so the thought process of having a larger lot of land, um, are you looking to develop it? And if so, if you're pursuing a development play, do you kind of have a time horizon that you have in mind of when you want to develop the land? Because you're getting a small property, large land. I just want to hear the logic there. Absolutely. So, you know what? I'm not necessarily always buying properties for the perspective of development. The good part is that once you, because if you buy a small house on a big piece of land, the logic is that yes, in three to five years, if the value increases, you have the ability to go and develop this land. And there's a lot of value that you can add in that process to further appreciate. But some clients who are coming to me are not interested in development. The business model is still the same because you still have the luxury at that point to sell it to a developer, right? Because there's three types of, when you buy a property today, the question you want to ask yourself is in the three to five years, who do I sell purchase? Who do I see purchasing this property? If I buy it for X price, Who's going to be paying me 1.5 or 2x tomorrow, right? So number one, you have the end users. Is this property cater to end users, right? So if you look at the trend of COVID, having a small house, the square footage is about a thousand square feet. But what you do is you add a backyard driveway and a basement to it. All of a sudden, it's a lot more attractive to an end user. So end user check mark. Number two, an investor. Can this property support two apartments and make my cash flow really well? So that if I put 20% down and take an 80% 
loan? Can the cash flow support the debt? Checkmark investor. And the third, what I really like about adding the bungalows into the category is that Toronto still has a huge insatiable, like, you know, appetite for people who are still going into the market to develop because there's, there's that pressure of increased housing. I like to have the third category of buyer also who I'm going to sell to in the next two to three years. Now, whether or not I want to be that third person myself and become the builder to build it and also add value is my option. So, which I'm doing now myself, right? Because I've got the, again, the, my portfolio has done really well. I've gained, a, like my loan to value is extremely low. So for me to like take equity out and also do the development makes sense. But even for an investor who doesn't want to do that, I think to add more and more buyers in the future for a property makes it a lot more valuable. That's why the concept of buying small and a big piece of lot will always go further, especially in good locations. Because again, you can see as the pressure of housing is going more and the supply is getting tighter, whoever is sitting on freehold land is king right now. I know you said, you know, majority of your clients are, are kind of higher net worth individuals. And I understand that Toronto probably doesn't work for someone that's like, you know, scraping together the down payment for like barely anything, but like, what do, what do numbers look like on a deal in Toronto that you're seeing a lot of investors do? Um, or, or if you're more comfortable talking about one of your own projects, whichever works, whichever is better. Yeah, absolutely. I can give you a couple of examples. And again, the difficulty is I can give you an example of a property that I closed in November, which mm -hmm. is four months away. But the reality is that every month things have changed so much, but I can give you a very simple example. Um, the first thing is that you have to pick areas that you feel are still have further catching up to do with different other neighborhoods in Toronto. So my rule of thumb has always been so far. And again, in the next few years, I may not have that same, same business model, but if you ask me today, what is my business model? It's very similar to what it was the last few years ago, which is 15 to 20 minutes from Toronto, very close to public transits, uh, minimum 25 foot lot because 25 foot detached foot lots can incorporate a garage. So I want the option of, Whoever's purchasing this lot can also say that I can put a garage inside the house. So minimum 25 foot lots, detached bungalow homes, right? Now I've always switched the neighborhoods as the prices have, in my opinion, reached saturation point. So to give you an example, in October, I purchased a home that closed in December. It was a 40 foot lot that I purchased in South Etobicoke. Um, this 40 foot lot I purchased was for 1.125. Now, the first chain of thought is, if you're purchasing this 40 foot lot in a bungalow that also has a separate site entrance and has ability to turn this into a legal duplex if I wanted to, what are some of the other 40 foot lots and neighbors of similar logistics? How, how are they selling? You wanna first compare it to different neighborhoods that have similar logistics and location to downtown and four. So Leslieville, Beaches, North York, all the other areas comparative to this are in that 1.4 to 1.5 mark. So to me, automatically, I feel like this 40 foot lot which has similar logistics, good schools, good area, good backyard, close proximity to highways and public transit and all that stuff. I think this area has potential for it to grow, right? So that's first check mark. Number two, can I purchase this property for 20% down and cover my debt service? How are the rents doing? So you look at the main floor rental, look at the basement rental. I'm looking, I'm getting about $4,200 a month, 25 upstairs and 1300 in the basement or no. It's, it's a three bedroom, so about 1700 in the basement. So my cash flows are on 42 to 4300, which covers my down payment and my property taxes and my insurance very easily because the tenants are paying their own utilities. So my cash flow is minimum break even, which is my second criteria. And number three, which is again a big part of who we are today, which is that we're landlords in Toronto and it's a very one sided law system. And you have to be sure about the demographics of who is renting these properties and is this actually. Um, you know, realistic in the sense that am I going to be stuck with kind of people that don't pay rent? How are the demographics? What kind of people are renting it? So a proximity to downtown answers a lot of those questions, which is that usually it's young professionals who are getting out of condos and they want to be able to rent spaces where they can have a backyard space, driveway to park their cars and have close proximity to schools and parks, et cetera. So to me, check, check, check three things. I buy this property for 1.125. My cash flows are great. And I just got it appraised you know, like a, a week or two ago and the appraisal came at 1.5 million and I had spent only 80,000 and putting that kitchen. So to me, I can at this point pull it all out and have walk away with like, a, you know, nothing, my investment back to me and my cash flows are still doing well because I had a $500 plus cash flow. So that's my last investment that I made. And yes, it's still possible in 2021 and 2022. You just need to know who to work with, where to work and how to really select areas 
where you still can be able to manage your cash flows and be able to see some further growth in your equity. To get a better understanding, when you take a look at these properties here, um, are you looking at zoning as well for future potential or are you just purchasing it with, you don't care for zoning, you don't do that kind of due diligence there? I'm absolutely doing that, Austin. And that's a fantastic question. And I think anybody who's buying it in today's market as a smart investor should be looking at zoning, which means is, well, the development in the area, which is directly linked to the equity, potential equity growth potential of the property is linked to zoning as well, which means what is the government currently allowing to build on this piece of land? And what do we feel in the next three to five years, how much development do we see happening? And that's directly linked to zoning today. And so to give you an example of this particular property, I can take this 40 foot lot, build a 3000 square feet home anytime I like as of right. If I also look at the future, what I really learned was that 40 foot lots are now under a lot of pressure to be severed. It used to be 50 foot lot as the norm. You know, you take a 50 foot lot, you cut it into two and you've got two 25 foot lots. But now the government is starting to allow a lot more semi-detached homes which is you take a 40 foot lot, cut it into two 20 foot semi-detached homes. So that's my upside. That's my bonus that I see this. And I see this as, you know what? And it works exactly with what Ford came out with his housing rules that they need 1.5 million homes in the next five to 10 years, whatever it is. So taking a house, which is serving one family and it's a small home. And now you go to a government and you propose, I'm going to build two houses out of this one. And the proximity to downtown is fantastic knowing about zoning, learning about zoning, kind of interpreting where we see the future. You know, you buy something, you want to check the ability for it to have a garden suite. You want to have the ability to see if it can be severed. You want to have the ability to see if it can have, you know, above the garage uh, laneway housing. So these things are just part of you that you, when you see a property and you qualify it, uh, that you want to know, not just as a person who's going to develop in the future, but just to like, have an extra checkbox to say, I see somebody paying me 1.5 X or two X for this property that I'm paying X for today, because it's got so many different features for it to go. This property has a lot going for itself. So I guess in your, in your opinion, when we look at the Toronto market, and I think this is going to change based on where in Toronto you're located, but are you basically like, is it East York is primarily laneway housing. Um, and then is there a certain, certain areas that are more favorable towards the garden suites versus the sever and, um, the model that you just talked about where you take a 40 and then you sever it and you put two semis, right? Is there, is there an area that you see garden suites really coming into play here? I guess is my real question or, um, I think a lot of those detached homes that have a driveway that you see a detached garage sitting in the back. Okay. And and I think there's other restrictions for it as well. You need to have a minimum depth. You need to have a minimum frontage. You need to be able to see different aspects. And that's why like, you know, in your network, you need to have architects, designers, planners that you constantly network with, constantly talk to. So when I purchase a property, you know, I'll run that idea by a few people that I have in my network, get their opinion on it to see like, Hey, do you think this has got some extra potential? So for example, I sold a property to actually an investor client very close to my office. And it, for some reason had two driveways. It was a 35 foot lot and was 200 feet deep. So at some point when garden suites do get allowed, it can have a separate driveway that goes all the way in the back. Especially in Toronto, I'd imagine you'd want to look at future potential um, because like, as you said, no supply out there. Um, government needs to do something about that. So you, if you have a larger piece of land, there's always going to be more flexibility and more choices of what you can do there. Um, I wanted to ask you about your development project that you were kind of alluding to a bit earlier. So when did you feel like it was the right time for you to explore development? Because your current strategy has been working wonders for you, right? Like, the market's appreciated, you're cash flowing. At what point did you decide you wanted to go into development? And also, what are you developing? A multiplex or is it like a luxury kind of uh, single family that you're going to flip? You know, goal is to obviously be able to develop more things, you know, buy a piece of land, sever them into townhomes and all that. But to me, I, I believe in also not, uh, you know, how do you say it, biting more than you can chew, right? So for me, I've done four luxury home projects as of today. Right. So the goal now is to do uh, four more this year. So I'm doing four extra luxury homes. And the logic to me is that if you've purchased houses, so typically I'll do a five year turnover, whatever I've purchased four to five years ago in the 2015, 2016 year, those are the properties that are ripe to build because they've seen a lot of growth and I have a lot of equity sitting in them. So it makes sense to refinance. A lot of them are with joint ventures. So 
the pressure for me to come up with the entire construction cost is a lot lower. So let's say I'll give you an example of a property that I developed last year. This is a property I purchased in 2014 in South Scarborough, which is um, Upper Beaches. So I bought this property for 600,000 in 2014, 2015. And the current market value, when I look at the land alone, was about 1.1 to 1.2, so almost double. So now I look at what are end user, if you build a house on a property like this, what are they selling for? And they're selling for close to 2 million. So for me, either I can take it, go and sell it to someone else, or come in and start building these and also make that two to $300,000 juice that you have in the middle as myself in the builder. To me, it's not always about how much money you make, because if you look at your time, it's not just return on investment, it's also return on time. And the different ways you can justify that selling as is is better, refinancing is better. To me, it's also about learning and constantly growing. So for me, I've learned to be a good investor, I've learned to be a good real estate agent, and I'm really learning to now be a good developer so that I can have enough experience that if one day I wanna do bigger projects, I have to be able to know at least basics of construction. So for me, it's not always about, you know, if I'm making 100 or 200K or even if I'm making more selling as is and taking less risk than building and then selling. So that's the logic behind a lot of the developments that I've done in the last, and I've learned a ton, right? Like just to be able to know like foundation, framing, drains, plumbing, rough-ins, inspections, zoning, committee of adjustments, T-Lab. The process of learning is just endless, right? When you start developing. Also, when I buy houses, I look at them from a very different perspective because I can almost calculate what I can see in this property, what I can see the building, and then I can wear my realtor hat and really answer my own question and how much I can sell for and therefore calculate that very quickly. Now, imagine taking that knowledge and giving it to clients and synergizing it right with my realtor services as well. So if somebody comes to me and says, Sile, can you help me buy a property that I want to build and sell? How much knowledge can I as a realtor give him versus a lot of the other realtors? So as a developer, the plan is to keep developing and keep growing. One of the things also that I've learned is that, you know, you end up spending the same amount of time building one or two houses versus if you spend that you're developing four or five. And therefore having control over contractors, slashing your prices for materials, economies of scale is a big one. So for me now, I've decided that going forward, I'm going to do minimum four to five projects together. And I will wait two, three years until I have enough inventory. I have financing set up for each of those projects with my joint venture partners. And I have enough equity in them that I can, even if I you know, fuck up a little bit, I still have some room that I can manage and walk away with a profit. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a constant learning game. And this is just like, you know, you can see how passionate I am about development. I absolutely love it. And I thankfully have enough inventory that I can develop for the next three, four, five, six years. And when I develop and sell, and I get all that equity, it gives me all the more power to double down on Toronto and you know, not just focus on pricing, focus on the value and then going to look into properties. Like, you know, now I'm looking at a lot of different things. So I'm looking at you know, mechanic shops. Can I buy this and then build eight townhouses on it? Is this area look like it's you know, something that's my planners believe that we can buy it and sever them. And so it's, it's a lot of different things. Once you get into the development game, I think your thought process and your knowledge base just as an investor completely changes and becomes a lot larger. I guess the only question that I'd have is, um, have you thought about developing into the multifamily space, right? Cause you know, having duplexes right now, and this might be zoning that might be stopping you here, but like, could you put a fourplex or, or even bigger than that? Right. And, and just hold these assets long run. Um, and is there a reason that you don't go that route instead of going the luxury side, which luxury is great, but like you can't, you can, but you probably wouldn't want to hold it um, if something was to happen, right? So to answer that question, I think it's also a lot of personal enjoyment for me, right? Like for me to do luxury mm -hmm. homes and having this, I don't know if you've seen a lot of my Instagram videos, but they're yeah. all contemporary open concept, modern homes. So for me, like it's a lot more sexier and, and more enjoyment of my time to be able to look at a home. How can I make this home look absolutely beautiful kill the spaces and be able to beat all the prices when I sell right mm -hmm. now. But it's also important to watch your portfolio and the diversification of your portfolio. So currently I've got three houses in my portfolio that I know I'm never going to sell and They're just pure, simple cash cows. One of the property is a fourplex. So I've got four rents coming from one and I purchased it for like 900 and my rental income is 7,000 a month. If you look at my monthly outflow, it's about 3k and my monthly inflow is about seven. 
So I have two or three properties with very similar cash flow that give me very good passive income. And I look for those properties as is. I don't necessarily want to buy land to build fourplex currently. And I know it's probably the smarter way to go to you know hold land and create passive income. But uh, currently, I also am in the growth phase. What I mean by that, Mayu, is that I do have to be able to sell a few things to create enough more and more capital for me to then go into like larger projects like multifamily. Right. And it comes back to like, don't bite more than you can chew. And also your mortgage agent, I've never in my entire life taken construction loan or a B loan to build. That's my way of like sort of offsetting risk. If I don't have enough A lender financing or private financing from a joint venture partnership and my own saved money combined to do a project, I just don't build. I don't, I'm not in the pressure to build because the properties I do have have a check mark of cash flows in them already. Right. So to me, it's not uh, any pressure to build. It's all about like, Hey, I can pick and choose this property now who's where I can easily refinance and include my joint venture partner. I, I'm not paying seven, eight, nine, 10% construction loans, not to mention the headache of construction loans. If I can comfortably build and walk away with a lot of equity and then disperse that equity into areas where there's less saturation and more equity growth, I will take that out and I'll put them into growing areas and pull them out of saturation point areas. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you don't need to have that undue stress, like additional stress on yourself. I'm sure you're busy enough as it is with your flip projects, your current portfolio and the realtor business. Why get into a situation that might keep you up at night and getting all of these additional financing just to try. Right. And contrary to, I guess, what shows from my portfolio, the growth of like, you know, zero to 17 in like 10 years, I'm actually tread very conservatively, but I do my due diligence. I guess I'd like to say more than a lot of people, but like to a point where I'm absolutely have to be convinced that this property will grow faster than market. As long as you've got that conviction when you purchase a property that market's going to move at whatever pace market moves, but I want to be able to beat the market by double figures or 8% figures. And you need to have enough reasons on the table. Then I think you get into the habit of choosing properties selectively and really well. And again, market has really helped me and my timing has been amazing. And I can contribute a bit of luck to that, but I have to be able to utilize that luck even better to my advantage now, right? Instead of just being extra aggressive, taking too much leverage on my portfolio, because if you do look at my $25 million portfolio of 17 homes, my LTV is still sitting at 50%, which is very conservative. This is now another question that's a little bit outside the realms of real estate, but I guess as you, cause you self-manage your own properties, right? Correct. Yeah. So as you've grown, you know, these different businesses, how is, how has your team changed? How is, cause I'm sure early on, like we rewind back like 10 years ago, it was just you kind of, I'm sure you just slumming it out every day. You were just grinding away at it. Right. But uh, how has your team changed and how has your business overall? For, like, how has that changed in the last couple of years? It's a great question. And I think until I would say three years ago, I was working 100% myself. So I was the builder. I was the realtor. I was doing all the paperwork and contracts myself. I was the person doing all my property management of up to 30 tenants in this environment. And I was the person who was also showing properties and selling listings, all of it myself. And it was absolutely getting to a point where I was about to explode, right? I've really made a conscious effort in the last couple of years to see how I can, you know, take my success and be able to create an infrastructure where I'm also not overwhelmed. That also gives me the time to be able to think about growth rather than the day to day. So just like, you know, a year, year and a half ago, I've actually partnered with, with somebody who's come in and joined me from a health tech business background. And we both are doing very similar mindset. He's also a younger guy. He's just about to complete his realtor license as well. And the goal is to grow this team and grow the Mink brand into something that can offer people more than what other people are offering, not just in the real estate sales business, but also like somebody who's coming and say, I'm an investor. Can you help me? And what kind of services are we providing? Because there's no way I'm going to be able to do the day-to-day -day and be able to keep thinking two steps ahead of the market, right? So how I'm managing this in a simple answer, like today I've got almost six people who are in my team. And we've got, you know, people who are door knockers, just simply going out there and door knocking. We have people who have a client success manager who's basically quarterbacking me and being in Ritesh, who's my other partner. And I've got Ritesh who's taking a hands-on role in, in the sales business and also the investor sales business. And meanwhile, I'm taking my attention and focusing on these development side of business. So 
the values haven't changed, the business models haven't changed, but we've got more people doing stuff in harmony so that we can provide more services and get better on our own as investors, always be able to beat the market by one or two uh, steps ahead. So growing the team and also like, eventually anybody who's, you're going to burn out if you're going to do this for like eight, 10, 12 hours a day, especially you don't realize it because if you're in the habit of doing everything yourself from day one, it's also a bit of adjustment to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to delegate this to somebody because you're, you're just so used to doing things and micromanaging every single thing to a detail. But in the last one or two years, I've really tried to like focus on the fact that I need to take a step back on things. I don't need to micromanage. And that's the only way I'll be able to like steam forward. And I think that's a great response. And it's something that we've been asking a lot of uh, more experienced investors, right? Especially as me and Austin kind of just grow out our own individual businesses, just looking at your, that, your right? life will completely change by just having even a single assistant in your life, just to be able to delegate. And I, and I think it's very short-sighted for a person to like think that, you know what, I can't afford one and this and that. I think it's worth a gamble because you will see that that's probably one of the best decisions that I've made. And anybody who has any scope of continued sustainable growth, you have to have people on your team assisting you and helping you. And also, I'm, in, I'm not just in the business of growing my own selfish portfolio. I'm also in the business of really helping manage people grow theirs. And it's unfair to them to not be able to get 10 on 10 service when they walk into our office. So for from sure, that perspective, yeah. I think this year, you know, like I said, we've got a team of six people and, uh, you know, we've even got a full-time handyman now, a guy who's just working with us between our renos, property management nonsense all day long. And, you know, just the clients properties that need work or old properties that we purchase and we have to do things. We need a guy who's absolutely full-time. So taking a full-time handyman slash small reno guy, We've got somebody who's managing clients. We've got a partner who's essentially doing exactly what I was doing, but in like assisting me with it because there's a lot of work to do. And then we've got two interns that are just door knocking and cold calling and getting off market opportunities, similar to what Austin's doing. That's awesome, man. I think this is a great episode. I think we covered a lot of um, how you got started, the strategies that changed over time and, and even, you know, what's going on in the Toronto market and how you're still continuing to buy, which I think is great. Um, before we move on to our, our two kind of wrap around questions at the end, I just want to ask you, cause I think, you know, all of us kind of just being students of the market, just, you know, you've had many more years compared to like myself, Austin, and even a lot of our guests. Right. So I'm curious in your opinion, and you're very in tune with the market, just being a realtor as well. I'm curious in your opinion, you know, where do we stand in the market cycle? Cause ultimately there are market cycles. Um, what's, you know, predictions or, or, you know, estimates or even your own research knowledge, anything that you'd be able to share with the audience in terms of the market right now? Absolutely. I think a person who's at a stage, who's done this a little bit and now wants to grow. Uh, I think they really, really need to start trusting their own instincts and having to read all kinds of researches, but coming up with their own logic and interpretation, obviously taking action is very important. But for example, in the last four to five months since October, where I bought my purchase last purchase, which was again, compared to market value, I got a very good deal. I've been a little wary about buying properties, right? So you have to be able to like, see like, if this is a seller's market and there's frenzy going on and there's too many people buying and there's unrealistic inflated amounts being thrown at, you know, properties, you need to be able to also learn to step back and be patient because as you said, there's cycles. I get there's fear of missing out and people want to enter the market, but it's also important to work with people who've seen ups and downs of cycles to be able to guide them with the right opportunity and the timing of purchases. So for example, I've put breaks on a lot of my investors in the last 30 to 45 days, just saying, I think the next step should be to wait for interest rates to rise. And there will be a period, a window where inventory will rise because there's no way that this is just going to continue and the interest rates will go up and affordabilities will get hit and there will be less lesser inventory, right? It just doesn't happen. So take a step back and if you're able to hold off, sometimes it's important to do that and to be able to recognize cycles. And initially as an investor, I used to be, you know, you hear this a lot of people where it's like, you know, real estate can never let you down and this and that, but you have to be able to succeed in the short term to be able to last the long term. So it is important to also know when to press the brakes and not to buy foolish investments because if your first property or your second property is a wrong property, I think you're going to be in a very difficult position to be able to afford your third, fourth, and fifth, or even to continue as an, as an experience. Like, for example, I put a lot of weight into assessing what kind of tenants are you going to have in an area when you buy. 
It's not just important about pro forma rents and purchase price and ROI matching, but who's renting these properties and knowing that the laws is not on our side, what am I going to be dealing with? Because one bad experience and one bad property choice can basically end your career in real estate in this market, right? Where you can get priced out and you're like, I'm not doing this again. So it's important to sort of manage yourself, watch your instincts. And I think the easiest answer is work with the mentors, coaches, and the right people who've had experience of dealing with these things to guide you. You just cannot, and you know, you, you've seen there's 60,000 realtors, like it's apparently like uh, one realtor for every six people in Ontario or 60 people in Ontario. Insane to think about it. So there is a lot of incompetent people out there giving advice. So you have to be able to choose the right people. And I commend you guys doing these podcasts because you also select people in your network to be able, hey, so you can like reach out to mentor, reach out to coaches and people can sort of recognize these people and go on to them and say, hey, are you able to take the time to help me because I'm in need of you know, buying a property and I don't want to make the wrong decision. And those people will then guide you to do that. There's enough information and technology to help you meet these people. And you don't have to you know, drive across the street anymore. You can just do this on Zoom. So biggest advice is be careful, work with the right people and uh, you know, trust your gut when you know when to like stop and when to keep moving forward because too much fast growth is also a bit dangerous. And I've seen a lot of wrong decisions made by people. And all you're doing is then trying to clean up their portfolios, which is even harder. Because transactional cost in alone just ruin you, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think that's great. I think you might have you might have already answered the second part of the uh, the second question. Yeah. But the first question, I think, so you know, where do you see yourself five years from now, from your business perspective? Um, you know, are you going to be doing a lot of the same stuff, or where do you see it going? Um, so, as an investor, I definitely want to continue with uh, conservative growth. I want to keep my LTV under sixty. That's my goal. And I also want to create one or two more properties of really good passive income. And I want to double down on development. I think there is a lot of opportunity in Toronto where builders are now going to be able to escape a lot of red tape and be able to build a little bit more freely. Uh, there's a lot of red tape that exists in Toronto, but government is now supporting a lot of developers because they need housing. I think you need to be able to understand how CMHC operates, how affordable housing operates. So I want to be able to sort of you know, pivot into the development sector a little bit more. Um, yes, luxury homes are, are great. And depending on where I've bought, I already have some inventory to keep and also get better at learning how to do economies of scale and doing development on a bigger scale. Second, I want to be able to grow uh, my sales team where we can, you know, offer investors a better platform to have results. So again, train people, people who also invest in real estate is the kind of people I want to like intake as agents as in my team. So for example, the partner that I'm working with, he's onto his fourth property and he's only 32 and he's all his properties that he's purchased is exactly the model that, that we follow. So for me to do this as one person and now we have, like, for example, you asked me, I know a lot about Toronto, but I do think that there's a lot of opportunity to learn about areas like Windsor or Aurelia or Peterborough. So I think uh, my partner can take lead on a lot of areas of if people are priced out, where else do they go? What kind of research do we put in to be able to prepare those case studies for people to like come into our office and be able to get alternate investments outside of Toronto? So, um, and then lastly, you know, delegate more and hire more so that which, which gives you the freedom of sort of working less and working better and working a little bit more efficiently and growing. So uh, I think that should, that's my goal for the next five years. And Hopefully we're not in World War Three and all of those plans are fucking done. But <laughs> I think if I just follow that simple model that's sustainable, I think uh, that's the goal. That was actually one of the, the best answers to that question that I've heard any previous podcast guest. So that was great, man. Um, I think you it's touched on this. You it on my Instagram too. You guys are like getting a lot of views now. <laughs> that's awesome. For sure, man. Um, so, so last question for you and I, and I think you already touched on this before, so you can feel free to say the same thing again, but um, you know, for a new investor that's getting started in today's market, uh, what do you perceive to be the biggest risk for them? Well, inflated prices is number one. Uh, and just the frenzy and the, this fear of missing out, causing them to play inflated prices. And then there's a huge adjustment in prices and especially in condo and pre-construction market. Mm -hmm. I can be as specific as possible. I have a little issue with, and I think Austin and me chatted a few years ago when I think it was COVID and I was mentioning the same thing and you know what, to the contrary, pre-construction is still doing well, but I just fail to understand that how people are still paying 17, 18, $2,000 a square foot for shoe boxes downtown. And 
I think the supply of condo, there's still a lot of opportunity and there, there is room to grow. So if you're invested in freehold, I think you're already risk averse. But uh, yeah, I, I see a lot of people going wrong and their decisions that they're making for just the fear of missing out is really causing inflatory prices to be paid, right? And that's my worry that I see immediately. So pre-construction is great for people who can't afford uh, currently and you know are maybe in self-employed businesses that need two years of sustainable income, but your selection of the pre-construction has to be further reviewed. Your filtration process has to be better. So don't just go, get me anything that you have. Get me whatever you have, just get me in. That's not the way. You have to be very selective if you're buying property that has uh, naturally the ability to have a larger supply. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to tank down on condos, but your rent prices, not that high compared to what they're selling for nowadays. Plus you had in maintenance and geez, the weeds, like I don't know how much negative thousands of dollars. Yeah. It's, it's a little nuts to see prices of pre-construction because I liked what you guys were doing in Windsor. I was following it a little bit. I saw your podcast with uh, Andrew Hines as well. And I really resonated with that because you were talking about, Hey, like we're new investors. We're young. We can't afford in Toronto. What else do you do? So the way you guys, really scaled in Windsor, I think was fantastic the way you were doing it. And uh, I think that kind of model is a lot more smarter investor model versus because I don't have the money, just get me what everybody else is buying at inflated prices without even knowing what kind of floor plan you're buying. It's just, you know, it's just lazy investments. So. Great to miss, yeah. Uh, I said at the beginning, I was excited for this episode. You did not disappoint Sahil. This was an amazing episode. I learned a ton. Uh, not to sound cocky, but Mayu and I always re-listen to our episodes once it comes out. I know I'm going to have this one on repeat for a bit. So uh, I love awesome, the content. I'm looking here. forward to it too. Yeah, one of the key takeaways I took here, and I think it's like such a simple statement, but it holds a lot of weight, is, is that like good investors need to know when to stop as well. Right? Like you need to be able to know when to stop. If you're just consistently buying in perpetuity forever, that doesn't necessarily make you a good investor. Savvy investor needs to know when to turn it on and off. So really like that point you made there. Uh, I'm not scaring anyone to say not to invest in real estate. Real estate's a great asset. You just need to be, um, I guess, do your due diligence at the end of the day, because it is a big investment for a lot of people. And if people want to connect with you, chat with you, learn more about your journey or anything like that, how could they do so? Instagram is where we are throwing most of our content. We are most active. Uh, so Mink, at Mink Real Estate, simple. Uh, that's the Instagram. We also have at Mink Real Estate team where a lot of my team is posting some stuff. So very easy to reach out, send us an inquiry or just Google us, Mink Real Estate team. Awesome. Appreciate you jumping on, man. For all of you guys who enjoyed this episode, like, subscribe, do whatever you can to support it. Five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.